Our text this morning is Psalm 139, and we're looking at the joy of life. And if you look at your bulletin outline, you'll notice that verse 14 is put in there, and that's taken right out of this psalm. Uh, David says that he rejoices in the fact that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. In the original creation, the Genesis account demonstrates that while man was created last by God, his ranking in creation is first. We could say it this way, God saved the best for last. All of the rest of creation, sun, moon, plants, fish, fowl, animals, was preparatory for God's crowning achievement, the creation of man. This was not the result of some fanciful notion of evolution. Man is not the advanced image of an ape. But as God Himself determined, so God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Genesis 1 verse 27. Of no other creature do we read, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. King James Version says, a living soul. Your cat, your dog, your horse, your hamster, they all have animal life in them, but none of them have souls. None of them bear the image of God. God's image is reserved for those who have the potential, and I use the word potential now since they fall into sin, but they have the potential of becoming the sons and daughters of God as part of His family. Of Jesus we read, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now you can tell by just, that's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. You can tell by the phraseology that's very similar to what's being said about Adam and Eve, but with this distinction. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, reading from Hebrews, and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Hebrews 1, verse 3. In Luke's genealogy, tracing all the way down, or actually starts where, where Christ is and works His way back to, Christ, to Adam, he ends in chapter 3, verse 38, and he identifies the first man as Adam, comma, the Son of God. Adam, the Son of God. In the created sense. The difference is that Jesus, as the Son of God, is God's exact facsimile. When you see Christ, Jesus told His disciples, you have seen the Father. So, all human beings, by reason of God's creation, 
bear the image of God in their life. Now, it is a marred image because sin has blighted all that Adam once was. But when the dust settles, mankind is not an evolved ape, but still the creation of the chief potter who used his own personage as the mold from which to cast mankind. We can think, we can reason, we can feel that's like God. This is why man also has ruling or governing power over all creation. He received this mandate from God. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them, what? Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 1. Verse 26. Now, Ape was given <laughs> that kind of authority and that kind of power, but man was because he is the crown of creation. The godless of our age do not acknowledge this. If evolution is true, if evolution is true, then all the other forms of life have their rights as well as us. And in many cases, according to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, their rights are above us. So if a hydroelectric dam built on a canyon river is going to disturb the mating habits of an obscure species of fish, the project is likely to be killed in deference to the fish. Despite the benefit of electricity to hundreds of thousands of human beings. What would be the sane thing to do? Relocate the fish and build the dam. That would be the same thing, sane thing to do. But if you think that all of creation is the same, there's no distinction between fish and men. You can see where that mentality affects philosophy of life. And many of the ills that the government and academia foster upon us as human beings is rooted in the denial that mankind is the crowning creation of God in his own image. So human life then becomes cheap and expendable and worth no more than the dead possum out here on the roadkill of the highway. Just think about the subject of abortion for a moment, just a moment. If the baby is just animal life, right? No different. Then it's expendable. Like cattle and chickens and pigs that we kill to feed our bodies. And people kill babies to feed their selfishness, to foster independence, and as a denial of personal responsibility. It's just an animal protoplasm. No distinction. Brethren, as kindly as I can say it, human life is special. It's special. It carries in it the genius of God. The psalmist says, it, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. Verse 14. But do you know that? The word wonderfully here in Hebrew is a word that means to be distinct, separated, set apart, distinguished. Your works are set apart. The word fearfully, when he says I'm fearfully made, means to cause astonishment and awe, to inspire reverence or godly fear. We know now that every individual on earth has a unique DNA. No two are alike. Part of what studies in the Human Genome Project have unearthed is that every human being is distinct from every other human being by billions and billions of sequent markers in the DNA so that no two of us are absolutely identical. While all of us share 95% similar traits, we all have eyes, ears, limbs, mobility, Cognizant skills, barring any kind of deformity. Scientists now know by studying the chromosome biology that all men can trace back to the first man, Adam. But they credit evolution with this truth rather than God's unique creation of Adam as the crown of all God's work. Interesting to find that the psalmist, without a microscope to his name, without the latest in scientific apparatus, nonetheless came to the truth when he said to God, You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 13. Do you know how special it is just to know that? Just to know that. God as creator and mankind as his creation is the basis for human existence and human life and living. The acknowledgement of this truth is rare in our society. Even people say, I believe in God, don't believe in creation. They don't believe in the creator. Their concept of God is non-biblical. Secondly, the acknowledgement of God as creator forms the framework for reconciliation. Also explains the estrangement, but then forms the framework for reconciliation. What do we hear from people who disown and disallow God as their creator? Ever thought about that? How do people talk? How do they think? People who do not acknowledge God as creator. Well, to put it in a word, any distinction between creator and creature is blurred by such people. The image bearer of God, namely man, begins to think of himself as equal to God or worse, superior to God. You lose the concept of creator and you as creature, you know, this way, and we start to begin to think this way, and God forbid, this way, with man on top and God subject to him. Say, well, I don't know about that. Well, let me give you some examples from the Bible. 
King Nebuchadnezzar of the Old Testament was, like King Herod of the New Testament time, a great builder. A list of the seven wonders of the ancient world include the following. Now, some of these you will not recognize, and most of them no longer exist, but I'll give them to you anyway. The Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, built 2500 B.C. Yeah, that's still around. You can still go visit that. You can still tour that. The statue of Zeus at Olympia, no longer around, was built out of ivory and gold-plated bronze in Olympia, Greece, from which, yeah, you all get it, we have the uh, reference to the Olympic Games. The temple of Artemis at Ephesus, or Diana, depending on whether you're talking Greek or Roman name, you'll find that in Acts 19, verse 34, reference to that temple. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The mausoleum of Halicarnas was a four-sided grave crypt for a prominent Persian satrap named Mausolus, hence the name Mausoleum that comes from him. That was built in 350 B.C., was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Number four, Colossus of Rhodes. This was a giant replica of the Greek god Helios. Helio, sun, sun god, okay. 100 feet tall on the island of Rhodes, built in 280 B.C. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Next, the lighthouse of Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt. It was at the harbor of Alexandria, 400 feet tall. Well, I think skyscrapers are, what, 10 feet between floors or something like that, so you can figure out what's being said there. In the top of that lighthouse, they maintained a perpetual fire that could be seen by ships for 35 miles out into the Mediterranean. See, I didn't know they had lighthouses in the ancient world. Well, they had ships in the ancient world, and they had the same perils coming into seaport cities and so forth, you have to avoid the rocks and all of that, the shoals. And so they built this tall lighthouse at Alexandria. And then lastly, and I only listed it lastly because to make the point, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a structure of tiered walls 400 feet high containing rich botanical foliage that appeared to be suspended in space. When people would approach the city of Babylon, they would see all this foliage. And of course, it grew down over the walls, so you couldn't see the supporting structure. And it just looked like it was, here you are, you're coming out of the desert, and you've got all this beautiful, gorgeous flowers, vines, trees, bushes, all of these things. And it just kind of looks like it's hanging there. So they called it the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar built this for his wife, who was from Persia and was missing all of the rich foliage that they had. So he imported all that and built it. Listen now to King Nebuchadnezzar's evaluation of his kingdom. We read, 12 months later, that is 12 months after Daniel had interpreted the king's dream and had warned him to repent of his arrogance and to repent of his sin, twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built 
as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Reading on, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from your people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times or seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Daniel 4, verse 29 through 33. And you will not read that in any secular history about Nebuchadnezzar. But here it is in the book of books. Now had Nebuchadnezzar remembered that he was but a creature and God was creator, this would never have happened. Well, God got the glory in the end, as he will with all men, by the way. Let me read it for you. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor, were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and, 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 and I was restored to my throne and I became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glory of the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Daniel 4, 34 through 37. Wow. Here's a man whose kingship went to his head. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I have created by my might and for my majesty? Consider as another example Nebuchadnezzar's anti-type King Herod in the New Testament. I'm referring to King Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, that Herod that slaughtered the babies of Bethlehem in his attempt to kill the Christ child. Well, Agrippa I was equally bloody, equally ruthless. He executed James, the brother of the Apostle John. He planned to do the same with Peter and imprisoned him for that purpose. But God snatched Peter from Herod's prison by sending an angelic missionary to free him on that night. And I pick up now at the narrative. After Herod had thoroughly searched, made a search for him, that is Peter, he did not find him. He cross-examined the guards. 
They didn't have any explanation, you'll remember. So what? He ordered that they be executed. That's what happened to guards, Roman guards. You let a prisoner escape, end of you. Or reading on. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea. He stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Those are uh, two cities that are out on this little island off the shore in the Mediterranean. They now joined together and they sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Well, yeah, they would. With, if you're an island, you've got to import everything, right? So they said, you know, enough's enough. Can we not have some peace? Can we have an audience with you? Reading on. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, Josephus the historian tells us that this, this was a special silver robe that he had constructed for the occasion. So it would glisten in the noonday sun. Wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and he delivered a public address to the people. And the people shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Acts 12, verses 19 through 23. Do you see what happened here with Nebuchadnezzar and later with Herod Agrippa? They were men who disowned the basic characteristic of their own existence, namely, that they were mere men, mere creatures of God, subject to God for all that they were and all that they had. And so long as people disown God as creator and try to eradicate their own station in life as creatures, there is no basis for reconciliation with God over their sin. They are in denial. I hope no one's in denial here this morning. By denial I mean that they are self-deceived with a great deal of help from the evil one who doesn't want people to see God as creator and themselves as creatures. Keep them blind, keep them stupid. That is Satan's model. In Christ Jesus, God's Son has come as John wrote about Him saying, He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John 1, verse 2 and following. Creator, creature, basis, reconciliation. Thirdly, we note creature madness and creature rebellion by disowning God. I could say it this way. It's not only people of power like King Nebuchadnezzar and King Herod 
who have problems of conceit and arrogance and a God complex that causes them to disown God or minimize His import. The unbelieving and wicked do this every day. They have a vested interest in doing this. I say a vested interest in doing this. Think of it. If God is who the Bible declares Him to be, good, righteous, holy, impeccable in His justice, taking up the cause of the widow, fighting on behalf of the orphan and the oppressed, not allowing the wicked to sin with impunity, if that's our God, then, then it becomes a matter of personal sanity, from their viewpoint, to disown God. If the God of the Bible does not exist, or if He is little more than the God of their own imagination, then there's no culpability for the evil that they dream up and do. That's why evolution fits so well into the scheme of the natural mind. Who are they, account who are they accountable to in evolution? A blob of slime? Down in the swamp, I'm accountable to you? I don't think so. I was talking to one woman about this very thing. She says, well, one thing I would think about man, she says, we're at the top of the food chain. <laughs> and by, by that she meant, I'm not accountable to anything below me. Yeah, but you're accountable to somebody above you. Let me give you some biblical examples of others. Other forms of rebellion against God. We read that Jesus, the light, of, light from God, came into the world, but the Apostle John told us, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now let me ask this question. Why has the darkness, or people in ignorance, not understood? Jesus gives the answer Himself. It's the same chapter. Here's what He says. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. He's talking about himself. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness, love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John 3, verse 19 and 20. And of course, that's what light does, doesn't it? It illuminates, it exposes. So I'm asking this question. Is this ignorance innocent or willful? Surely it's the latter. It's willful. They could know God as Creator. They could know His Son as Savior. But to do so means exposure of sin. It means a call to repentance, which they are not about to do because they prefer their sin over righteousness. Now that's not passive. That's deliberate. It's deliberate, willful rebellion. They know the consequences of exposure to the light, and so they disown God or they reduce Him to a God that they can live with. Let me read you some text. This is from Psalm 94. The psalmist writes, How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. 
They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. And they say, here it is, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Then God picks up the narrative. Take heed, you senseless ones. Among the people, you fools, when will you become wise? Does he who implanted the ear not hear? What's he, what's he falling back on? Creation here. He who created the ear, doesn't, doesn't the one who created the ear, doesn't he have hearing? He goes on. Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of a man, and He knows that they, those thoughts, are futile. Psalm 94, verse 3 through 11. You see what's going on here. Evil people cannot have a God who is all-knowing, who is all-seeing, because that will result in nightmares of terror and many sleepless nights. And so they simply postulate a God who does not see, or one who sees but pays no heed, He's unconcerned about the evil that men do to each other. It's of no interest to him. Either way, they've eradicated God, reduced him from what the Bible says that he is, made him over to be their own idol. Consider a similar example with a slightly different twist. Solomon writes, When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Conclusion, although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and he still lives a long time, says Solomon, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God, yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11 through 13. It is almost axiomatic that the more evil people get away with, the more emboldened they are to commit more evil. And that's why they say things like, well, God doesn't see, God doesn't hear, God's not concerned. There's no thought of God in their thinking. They're saying something like we have already seen. I can have anything I want, and there are no consequences. God doesn't see, God doesn't care, and furthermore, here's the new element, God cannot do anything to stop me. He is powerless. He's like me. Here's their folly. They reason that delay in justice is the equivalent of no justice. And that translates to a weak and powerless God that I need not fear. I think that's one of the things that God does. The delay of justice makes people even more evil. And Paul in Romans 2, I think it is, talks about them storing up wrath for the day of wrath. God's very patient. Very patient. 
even with the wicked. Let's them go on thinking what they want to think and then reaping the consequences. Now that brings us then to the believer's joy in God as creator and the joy in life as one of God's creatures. Now let's firstly hear the joy in knowing that God knows us. This is a terror to the wicked, but it's a joy to us. And the psalmist says it. Unlike the wicked who deny that God knows them and their deeds and will do everything to soothe their conscience with the thought that God does not see, does not hear, listen to the psalmist. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Psalm 139, the first six verses. What a radical difference here. Observe that this is far more than God knowing about us that we exist. Rather, God knows our activities at any given moment, when we sit, when we stand up. He knows what we are thinking. He knows our geographical location at any given moment, whether going out or lying down. In fact, He is familiar with all of our ways. Oh, there's more. He knows what we're going to say at any instant, even before the word is on our tongue. Brother, and I don't even know what I'm going to say sometimes. But God knows. Observe what the psalmist says of God. Verse 1. You have searched me. And you know me. You see, the psalmist is a believer in the God of the Bible. He is not disowning God. He is not minimizing God or trying to negate his knowledge and wisdom. Just the opposite. He is acknowledging that God has scrutinized him with such thoroughness that not one detail of his life has escaped the notice of God. Now let me ask some questions. Is he frightened about this? Oh, God knows my thoughts. He knows my words before they... Is this upsetting to him? Is he been on denial or keen on trying to hide? No, none of this. And yet, we read verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. That's his reaction. What is this, brethren? This is worship. That's what this is. It's worship. It is joy in knowing that God knows Him. He is pleased. He's at peace with this thought that He, as a creature of God, cannot attain to God's knowledge and lives and moves by God's supervision. That doesn't disturb Him. That gives Him peace and joy. I could say it this way. He is content to have God be God without His permission. 
and without any attempt to distract from who and what God is. He doesn't have to make excuses or tell lies to cover his sin. He knows. He takes delight in the exposure to the light of which Jesus spoke when he said, Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John 3 verse 21. He knows he's not a self-made man. He acknowledges that God is his creator and as such, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4, verse 13 and following. You see? He knows that God knows Him, and that doesn't scare Him. It doesn't frighten Him. He knows that God knows about His sin, and that doesn't frighten Him and scare Him either, because He knows that God has provided a sacrifice for that sin in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who the writer of Hebrews calls our great high priest and invites us, let's come boldly before Him. Not in fear and trepidation, but boldly because we're cleansed and forgiven in the blood of Christ. Now what's this? It is joy in God's omniscience. The fact that He knows all about it. It's unlike the wicked that says, God doesn't know. Doesn't know what's going on. Secondly, the joy of God's ever presence. The unbelievers try to hide from God because in their heart of hearts they know that God is holy and they are wicked. They know that God has promised to punish sin and will punish it, but they cannot bring themselves to contemplate an ever present God whose rule and grasp on people is everywhere. Sin does that to people. The first sin did that to our first parents. What did they do? They went and hid from God. And God came in the cool of the evening, walking in the garden, and said, Adam, you, where are you? Hear now the psalmist's joy. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, well, <laughs> surely, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. When I was a kid, I was scared of the dark. I just, I just knew there were monsters lurking in that closet. 
As adults, we learn of other kinds of darkness. We learn of the darkness of a wicked world where it is not safe to walk the streets at night. We learn of the darkness of an abusive government that restricts our Christian liberty. We're seeing that more and more in our day. The darkness of lies and deception and false doctrine that leads people astray. The darkness of an uncertain future. There's a lot of darkness in our world. But our joy as believers is that no darkness obscures the vision of God nor prevents Him from being by us in His watch care. God cannot be banned from His creation. He is everywhere present. And the psalmist takes delight in that. Because he's not trying to hide from God. He says, God, I'm glad you're right there. I'm glad you're right there with me. And then thirdly, there is the joy of God's all power. Look at verse 13. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Look at verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Oh, that says something about our future, doesn't it? You see, instead of trying to scrub away our creaturehood, and distancing ourselves from any connection with God. As believers, it's a joy to know that our life is mapped out by our loving and all-knowing and ever-present Creator God. Verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Even though they're too lofty for Him, He said that, verse 6, they're still precious to Him. The believer still loves the concept of God being God. We joy in the omnipotence of His creation. Verse 18. He says, when I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, you mean something bad in the dark didn't didn't happen? Didn't snatch me away from you? No, nothing happened. When I awake, there's God. Still there. Jesus put it this way. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. Here it is. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. John 10, verse 27 and 28. This is the joy of being alive as a creature of God knowing the Creator. Do you have that joy? I hope you do. And if you don't, you need to ask that you might receive. 
I don't believe that asking is itself salvation. Christ is always the Savior. But I will say this, no one is ever saved without asking. Jesus said, you don't have because you don't ask. Ask that you may receive. So if you're without Christ, if you're without the concepts that I've been teaching on this morning, that God is all-knowing, omniscient, that He is ever-present, omnipresent, that He is all-powerful, omnipotent. If you don't know these things about the Creator, then you're going to have a loftier view of yourself and a lesser view of God. And you won't know the great salvation that He's provided for us in Christ. But he's just a prayer way. You need to ask that you might receive. All of humanity will one day acknowledge these things about God. They won't be saying to him, you don't see, you don't hear, you don't pay attention. They won't be doing any of that. They won't be speaking arrogant, boastful words. They'll be saying things like, Rocks, hills fall on me. Hide me from the presence of him who comes in judgment. I'd rather know the creator as my savior than, my, than the creator as my judge and jury. Don't you? Same person, different relationship. Ask that you may find. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. That there can be joy in life if we understand our position. If we understand that we're creatures made in the image of God. What a privilege that is. Just to be made in the image of God. To be able to think and feel and make decisions. That we're not like the base animals of our society. Of our earth. We're more important than a fish or a bug. Or some other critter. We're the crown of your creation because we bear your image. And you made us for your glory so that we might be rightly related to you and praise you and worship you. Adam did that for who knows how long before sin entered. But when sin entered, it was his pride and it's his arrogance that got him into trouble. And it was his willingness to deny his creaturehood and begin to think of himself as knowing and being like God. That'll never happen. Creatures cannot become more powerful, more knowing than their creator. But men try. And they try because they're ignorant of who and what you are. It's a willful ignorance because your book has explained you for everyone who can read and I pray, Lord, that you will bless us this morning with your enlightenment. We take joy in life as your creatures. See anew that our role and responsibility is to live in obedience to you and to direct others to the great joy that can be theirs if they're reconciled to God. Send forgiveness on that struggling heart. Grant an eradication of their sin. Show them the glory of Jesus Christ who came to die and pay the penalty for their sin.
Today may life, real life, begin anew. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.